Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Plenty of global narratives reserve a privileged place for Silicon Valley, and Palo Alto in particular. Heroic stories abound about the place as the center of technological development, of innovation, of the future. What if, author Malcolm Harris asks, the companies of the Bay Area really have been the architects of the wildly unequal, dread-filled times we're living through? Their products and services haven't been a salve for our degrading life world, but rather the cause. Harris's new book, Palo Alto, traces a new arc through California history, from violent settlement and vigilantism, through the building of the missile suburbs, and all the way to Uber and other bad ideas. It's a lot, and it's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I should put my cards on the table. I've traveled a lot of the terrain, physical and intellectual, that today's guest, Malcolm Harris, presents in his new book, Palo Alto. And as someone who has surveyed the territory, let me say that Harris has attempted to synthesize an astonishing amount of research into a cohesive story about why the world is, as his previous book was titled, effed up and BS. At least that's the NPR safe version of the book's title. It's actually rare to encounter a book where I find myself thinking, was this too ambitious a project? The book's subtitle is, after all, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. And it basically tries to re-narrate the history of global capitalism and its war on communism through the figures of Palo Alto. So we go from Leland Stanford's corrupt railroad machinations and the egg cartel finance of AP Giannini's future Bank of America to the eugenics movement and radio innovation that took root at the school bearing Stanford's son's name, to its inaugural class member Herbert Hoover and the right-wing outposts he established at the university, and all the way through the great semiconductor chemists, personal computer makers, venture capitalists, and on to today. It's a story of continuity, really, in a place that usually stands for disruption. And as a dedicated leftist, Harris returns time and again to the way the force of capital structured that history— guiding raisin producers' decisions just as surely as it did Travis Kalanick's. In any case, there's a lot to talk about, argue with, admire, remember. We should get to it. Welcome to the show, Malcolm. Thanks so much for having me, Alexis. Um, So we want to talk a little bit first. I mean, this is a local show about your personal history in Palo Alto, which is also where you begin the book. Yeah, so I grew up there from age 8 to 18. My parents actually met both working at Stanford. My dad was an undergrad at Santa Cruz, uh, who was temping as a computer temp. And my mom was a research research assistant uh, working with the psychology department. And so that's where they met, even though neither of them attended the school or worked there for very long. Uh, And when I was older, we moved back to California and 
and that's where I spent most of my childhood was growing up in that Palo Alto. I mean, I think for a lot of people, Palo Alto has kind of wonder years, uh, but somewhat utopian suburban vibes. Is that how you felt it as a kid? Yeah, very much so. It really like it looked like the suburbia that I saw on TV. My life was very much like, you know, Boy Meets World. We, it was like, you know, three kids. Uh, dad went to work in the morning. Mom picked us up from school sometimes, you know. Uh, at a time when that was being vanishingly rare in the country, Palo Alto presented this sort of insulated bubble. And yeah, there was some, you saw the beginnings of some like obscene wealth on the edges. But the way I experienced it as a kid was mostly this like almost idyllic suburbia. Hmm. But there were some kind of cracks in that as you became a teenager, right? And in, in particular, it was the sort of mental health problems that you saw around you and that students down there were really experiencing. Yeah. So when I begin high school is also when what they call now called these suicide clusters began. Uh, we didn't really experience them as clusters. And it's interesting. I think that that social science sort of interpretation is now what controls the the discourse around it, because for us, it really felt like a constant stream of children dying by suicide, which is, I think if you look at the numbers in a wider sense, that's what it was. And there's a whole 200 page CDC report that ends up being authored about this phenomenon. Hmm. So how do you get from that childhood to really this book, which is, I mean, as we said in the top, kind of like a history of the world? (laughs) Well, you start with the railroad tracks. And so those railroad tracks were the most prominent mode of suicide uh, that we saw when I was a, a young person. But those railroad tracks are also so much the foundation of the West and definitely specifically the foundation of the town because Leland Stanford is the front man for the Southern Pacific Railroad. The town gets named for this tree that's right next to the railroad, right? It's a real a railroad town. Um, and so that's the original historical link that I'm making to tie those two stories together. But these metaphorical links end up being like really literal. You can end up being able to touch both sides of California history by stretching out your arms. It's a short period. So tell us, you know, what's missing from the Silicon Valley story? I mean, I started to make a list for myself, so I'll let you start and I can fill in. But I think, you know, from the the story of innovation, development, and sort of California that really, you know, begins there uh, on the Stanford Railroad tracks. What, to date, does it sort of like leave out? Or what are the key components of your theory that it leaves out? There's so many different parts. I mean, to begin with, so many versions of the Palo Alto or Silicon Valley story start in the 60s. Mm. Uh, And that's already, you know, almost two-thirds, basically two-thirds of the way through this history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you really have to start with the 19th century, not because that's when the town is founded, but because that's when the system that the town is built around starts. And that's what makes Palo Alto such a great uh, object to talk about this epoch, is it starts in the 1870s, uh, which is really when global capitalism is established. And so you have this topic, this object that allows uh, one, me, the author, to talk about the establishment of global capitalism in its full duration through the lens of Palo Alto. So let's talk about one of the fascinating 
parts of this work. I mean, you talk about California's agricultural model, which lots of people may know that Silicon Valley used to call the Valley of Heart's Delight. And there's these kind of like hazy and somewhat romantic memories about how it was all fruit trees and all these things. But you really took that kind of nostalgic memory that people have and start to say, okay, how did these ag businesses work? What was the labor that uh, picked the fruit? Who financed them? So tell us about the way that the ag industry came to organize in California as you kind of tell it in your book. Yeah, so California agriculture really has no sort of human small farmer history. From the beginning, California Anglo-American California agriculture is industrial agriculture. The farms are bigger. They're using more horses. They're using more advanced agricultural technology, uh, which is interesting because when it's established in this second half of the 19th century, it's really the furthest corner of the world to capitalist planners, but very quickly becomes the center of this capitalist world. And so the agriculture industry in particular, which is the beginning industry after mining, after gold mining uh, in California, takes on this really advanced character. And that means not just uh, planting technologies and the biological technologies like seed breeding and cultivating, uh, but also the finance behind them. And so very quickly, the, the farms are organized through finance capital, specifically the Bank of Italy, which becomes the Bank of America, into these cartels, explicitly these cartels, uh, that was able to maintain high prices for this produce. And so, yeah, when we talk about, when we talk about, oh, Palo Alto used to be orchards, it used to be apricot orchards, like those apricot orchards weren't uh, ancient or anything. These are capitalist <laughs> apricot orchards from the beginning, uh, organized under capitalist auspices that provided a lot of the basis for the wealth of the area. But it's not, it's not some like pre-capitalist formation and or pre-technological. It's not a contrast with Silicon Valley. It's a continuation. Hmm. And when we talk about what these cartels were, I mean, we're not talking about something that's in the, we're talking about sun-made, <laughs> sun-kissed, right? Absolutely. I mean, these, the, the way that these growers organized with this money from the, the Bank of Italy was actually like a durable way of doing these forms of production. Yeah, very successful and continues to these day to the to this day under the brands that we know and in the forms that we know today, sun-kissed, sun-made, uh, Blue Diamond Almonds, these are all characters, you know, creatures of the ag early agriculture cartels of California and the Bank of Italy, Bank of America, which financed them. They're also important, it's important to note, uh, characters of the segre racial segregation of the labor market of the time. And so you had whiteness really establishing itself through the formation of these cartels where you had Armenians, Russians, Syrians, along with Italians, Portuguese, coming together under the auspices of these cartels. At the same time, they're excluding, in particular, uh, Chinese, Japanese, East Indian, Mexican farmers from these same organizations. So in a sense, it's like what happens later with the, the FHA, where basically whiteness becomes sort of your ability to buy into a, a suburban home uh, with an FHA loan. Um, like the actual government is sort of pushing those, you know, those racial formations into into being or formalizing them, at least. 
And so it's not, the connection there isn't even metaphorical or like formal, right? It's Herbert Hoover, who is a member of these agricultural cartels as a farmer, he as a part owner in a uh, apricot farm, uh, as well as the convener as through Secretary of Commerce, when he's Secretary of Commerce and the presidency of these cartels and national policy around these cartels. Uh, and he is also the one who convenes the real estate industry to come up with the model zoning laws and the policies that are going to birth the FHA and redlining policies. So it's not that they, they, they look like each other or happen to look like each other. They're coming out of the same associational idea of technocratic government where you get the stakeholders, so to speak, the capitalists who own the means of production together w through the government and they come up with the rules together. That's the formation of cartels. That's how cartels work. And that's how Hoover, who's a product of Stanford and a product of this environment, wanted to organize the government itself. Yeah. Oh, man, we're going to talk a little bit more about Herbert Hoover. Just for, for people out there, it's important to note Herbert Hoover was right in the inaugural class at Stanford, right? At least as it applies to, to this book. Um, we're talking with Malcolm Harris about his new book, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the world. This is a beefy tome of history. It's really, really interesting. We would love to hear from you. What do you think the Silicon Valley story leaves out? And here we're talking about the long Silicon Valley story, not just the last 20 years. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Email questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're at KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more with Malcolm Harris right after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure... The smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Malcolm Harris about his new book, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. Uh, Malcolm, before the break, we were talking about Herbert Hoover, and I think I want to return to him because he is such a central figure in the development of Stanford, and he kind of spans so much of the the 20th century, and his legacy at the school uh, continues. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you see Herbert Hoover and his sort of what his mission in life, I suppose, as becomes embodied in the institutions around him? Yeah, when I originally planned to write this book, I did not plan on writing dozens <laughs> of pages about 
President Herbert Hoover. That was not, you know, this was not supposed to be a book about presidents or important white business guys. You know, it was supposed to be a critique of that sort of history, at least in uh, by way of doing it differently. But the more I read about Herbert Hoover, the more I couldn't avoid uh, just putting him at the center of the story because he plays such an important role. And it is connecting that 19th century in this settler California with not just the 20th century, but the post-war period, right? He lives into the 60s. He outlives FDR uh, in really important ways, not just uh, in terms of age, but his politics do too. So yeah, as you said, he's a member of the first class of Stanford University. And he's he's this orphan who shows up uh, ready to learn. He's a little behind academically, but that doesn't seem to stop him because he has this quality of being really good at organizing other guys. And he's put in charge of managing the sports team and he does a really great job and his teachers and the administrators take a real shine to him. And he's excelling in this field of mining engineering. And when he graduates, he's put forward as the first one of the first graduates of this new elite Stanford mining engineering program. And he has this sort of forced gump existence where he tours the whole world working as an adjunct for uh, European mining companies that are carving up the colonial world at this point. And so he's touring Peru, he's touring South Africa, he's going to Western Australia, he's going to Myanmar, he's going to China, he's going to Russia. And everywhere he's going, he's bringing these techniques that he learned at Stanford, and he's bringing his chums along with him. And this philosophy that he builds uh, follows him the rest of his life, and he enters into politics through World War I after becoming a mining financier mostly in London. And when the war breaks out, he ends up playing an important role in Europe comes back to the United States and is ready to be president. Uh, and he almost he almost gets it. He says, you know, whichever party gives me the presidency, I'll take it. Uh, and they don't really respond very well to that. Uh, and he gives this answer for the first time of what it, what's your politics? Uh, what party do you begin, believe in? And he says, oh, I'm a classic liberal. I'm a liberal, uh, which we hear from conservatives all the time now. Um, and Hoover is really the first one who gives it. And what he means by that is that I think groups of rich friends should run everything. And <laughs> I have lots of groups of rich friends and he, he, he accomplishes, you know, important things as far as the world's concerned with his group of rich friends. Uh, he's in charge of getting Americans off the European continent in World War I. He makes himself into this uh, celebrity out of this effort, uh, which he's done, which accomplishes through the credit rating of him and his friends. Uh, and so he be, he becomes the secretary of commerce at the time where this new department is being established. And he reorganizes so much of the government under this new department, under its Hooverian auspices, uh, with this associational model that he ends up applying as president uh, after two terms of commerce. And this is sort of where the story about Hoover ends commonly is 32 he right. gets beat by Roosevelt, you know, Hoovervilles, the Depression. Crushed, his really, fault. By, by FDR. Yeah. Really crushed by FDR. And I'm, I sort of found myself feeling for Hoover a little bit at this moment, being crushed by FDR, who's this, like, aristocrat, whose friends in Wall Street are the ones who are really responsible for this crisis. And Hoover's this, like, West Coast orphan who is like, no, guys, we need to control the speculating. Like, please stop. Um <laughs> 
and he's punished and his friends, like even his capitalist friends abandon him for a time. And that's supposed to be the end of the story. Uh, but the truth is he lives on and he builds the Hoover Institution at Stanford, which we know as a, a, an anti-communist citadel in the West. Stanford never abandons him. So he continues to play an important role at the school. But then in the post-war period, there's this time where after FDR's death and before Truman's election, when Truman's the president, but Hoover is the last elected president uh, at this point. Hmm. And Truman brings him in to rally Republican support for the Marshall Plan, which he does. And Hoover's touring Europe, Hoover's in Asia, and his flunkies, the same crew of guys uh, that he's been building up all those years, are instrumental in setting up this post-war situation, both in Europe and in Asia. And that really ends up determining the, the shape of the rest of the 20th century and now into the 21st. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, and thank you for that, pocket history of Herbert Hoover, which for, for people out there, I, I promise you, he's much more interesting character than you think to follow through history. Maybe not the man himself, but his path through history is, is totally fascinating. In part because he becomes an anti, and he, he, he becomes the anti-communist, and the things done under the name of anti-communism are a huge chunk of this book as well, right? Because there's there's sort of what connects Kuak and sort of right wing people at home here in the United States with these the the wars that the U.S. fights uh, in opposition to communists and leftists across the world. Yeah, and Palo Alto really emerges as this solution to the problem of the 20th century for America, which you can frame it a bunch of different ways. Uh, du Bois says it's the problem of the color line, right? We can understand it as the problem of anti-colonialism. Uh, you can understand it as the problem of democracy, right? Of economic democracy and worldwide equality. How can America keep an elite place in the world? How can white people keep an elite place in the world uh, if everyone's going to be equal? And so the preservation of an unequal world, uh, despite a unified world system, it's a real challenge. That's the challenge that they face. And Hoover faces this. You know, I swear I'll stop talking about Hoover in a second. (laughs) Uh, But Hoover faces this very personally in a way, again, that's Forrest Gump-like and kind of funny, where they start uh, confiscating his mines all over the world. <laughs> he has these financial interests in the mines and like he's present at the boxer rebellion. He has to batten down the hatches, uh, and like hide behind sandbags during the boxer rebellion in China. And his buddy is Romanov buddy gets, uh, exiled during the Bolshevik revolution. And they take over the copper mine that he had worked at. And the communists show up at his farm in California, and there's almost a shootout at the Hoover farm in California. And so when the bonus army shows up at the White House, uh, you know, and these are just American veterans who want some money, uh, which is nothing more American than that. Uh, nothing communist about that. He interprets it as a as an attack on the Winter Palace, right? This The communist revolution come to get him. And he, from that point on, interprets everything as the communists. We have to stop the communists. And this is the the task of capitalists and Americans in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And he really builds, he shifts the mission of the Hoover Library, uh, which had been a library until that, into a like think more of what we understand now as 
a foundational think tank institution, which has been very successful at Stanford in cultivating uh, anti-communism at the school and in the region and in the world. Uh, and Hoover, I think we, if we look back from the 21st century, the story is that Roosevelt beat Hoover. But if we look back now and you look back through Reagan, who was uh, in, selected in that back room at the Hoover Institution uh, around Palo Alto, and you look at George W. Bush, who was selected much the same way, and you look at Trump and his associational group of tech executives that was very Hooverian, you know, I think you really have to say that Hoover won. We're talking with Malcolm Harris about his new book, Palo Alto, A History of California Capitalism and the World. We'd love to hear from you. Are you from Palo Alto? We raised there. What does the city represent to you? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Or maybe you came from outside Palo Alto and, and moved there. I mean, what does that place mean to you? What keeps you there? The number is 866-733-6786. You can email your comments or questions to forum at kqed.org or Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, of course, kqed.org. I mean, one of you mentioned this idea of the solution to the problem of the 20th century being Palo Alto, this problem of how to keep the world unequal when everyone's in, you know, one, one system. And Stanford played another role in kind of establishing an underlying ideology for that inequality, which began in the early part of Stanford's history with its first president, David Starr Jordan, as a kind of unreconstructed and eventual you know, model for the Nazis kind of eugenics. But one of the fascinating things you do is you trace that history, the continuity of that kind of eugenics thinking, particularly around intelligence and you know, who would be considered the best men, um, kind of up all the way through the history of Silicon Valley. Can you trace that arc for us? Because it is kind of a, one of the key underpinnings of what people now call meritocracy. Yeah. And it, when I first started this project, I thought I was going to have to do a lot more symbolic linking uh, again, like the things are like some other thing, but these are directly linked uh, and you follow it directly from this first president, David Starr Jordan, who's a ichthyologist by profession. He studies fish, but his main interest in the world was as a proponent of the Anglo-Saxon race and of racial betterment and eugenics and what he ends up calling bionomics at Stanford. And he recruits a bunch of fellow staff from Indiana University where he had been that has a heavy eugenicist presence. Um, and with this faculty starts this study of what they call bionomics, which if you look at it, we really could un can understand it or see it as like evo-psych. It's like the, the competition for evolutionary supremacy explains not just biology, but economics, uh, social organization, the hierarchy of races, geopolitics, everything. You get everything from this natural order of organisms. And that ideology gets really built into Stanford. And one of the people he recruits is Lewis Terman, also from Indiana University, who changes the this IQ test that had been established in France, and he adapts it into the stand, what we know as the Stanford Binet IQ test. And they really start applying this bionomic concept to people and start measuring people's intelligence and start thinking about the population as this eugenic asset. And they so go so far as to try and test every child in California looking for 
uh, gold nuggets of super intelligence that will enable them to win the wars of the future, because this was a real big concern for them at the time. And I don't want to make it sound like they were aligned with the Nazis because they they weren't quite. And it was their realization that they were going to have to fight a war with a similarly eugenic but more militant Germany that spurred this real talent search to build a, a reserve of eugenic quality that could be shaped into the weapons of the future for California. But those weapons of the future became Silicon Valley. And we can talk about Bill Shockley Jr., who was an object of this IQ search and becomes the godfather of Silicon Valley, as well as Frederick Terman, the literal son of Lewis Terman, who becomes the other godfather of Silicon Valley and is also an object of this IQ search. Right. Yeah. And for, for those who aren't familiar, um, Terman becomes a very powerful administrator within Stanford and the one who kind of lays out the the plans really for how Stanford is going to be connected up into the military industrial complex uh, or what some people at Stanford would just call the Stanford complex because they saw its connections as being so um, intensely uh, built, uh, overbuilt perhaps. And then you have Shockley who becomes an influential founder of a semiconductor company, which immediately um, disintegrates and but ends up sort of seeding the ground of Silicon Valley for uh, semiconductor research. So I, I want to ask you um, a question from a fellow Palo Alto uh, resident uh, who I think wants to may agree with you more than he thinks. But here we go. James writes, I'm a longtime resident of Palo Alto. Your guest seems intent on skewing the history of Palo Alto as a capitalist enterprise. As a student at Ohlone School, he must not have known that the school was founded and run on progressive education principles or that it borders a friend's meeting place in a Buddhist temple or that its immediate neighbors, my relatives, were labor activists in the San Francisco longshoreman strike or that there was an active Communist Party cell operating not far away from the home of Kenneth Patchen. To those of us who know better and more, his views are not just uninformed but parochial and one-sided. How I guess this is sort of like a left critique of, of your take on Palo Alto. How would you how do you want to respond there? Well, then maybe I've, I apologize for spending so much time on Herbert Hoover in this discussion, because <laughs> I guarantee that you're not going to find a deeper discussion of Communist Party activities in Palo Alto than this book right here. Uh, going back even to the pre-Communist Party uh, time with the like original anarcho-communist radical insurrectionary party of Palo Alto, you know, like real old stuff. So don't get me wrong. This is definitely a story of capital and labor. And I don't think you can talk about one without the other and the struggle between them. And that struggle has been present in Palo Alto the whole time. So I don't want to get people, I don't want people to get yeah, that. Confused, I figured this would right? be something this you'd want to expand a, on. Yeah. Definitely a story of labor, labor struggle all the way through and labor struggle that people might not know. People might not know the, the history of all the labor struggle that's gone on in and around Palo Alto. Like I didn't know that the famous best-selling historian Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, I know she's a very important indigenous scholar and uh, left-wing activist. I didn't know that she was a line worker at Fairchild Semiconductor who was organizing the plant workers in the semiconductor industry. That's essential history. Uh, and I talk about H. Franklin and the new left. And I think I have a pretty revisionist but positive understanding of that formation and what's possible for struggle in Palo Alto. So don't, don't get me wrong there. At the same time, if people want to make a defense of 
Palo Alto in the 21st century and like Palo Alto overall, because there were some, you know, there's a sizable white Buddhist population in Palo Alto. Uh, that's nonsense. And they should think about explaining that to somebody in 2070 who's going to be living more directly with the consequences of what we're producing now. Um, another uh, question, Linda writes, um, my knee jerks left as much as anyone's, but this needs some explanation or expansion on the cartels. A bunch of small farmers come together to form Sunkist, and it is a demonic cartel, and Giannini is a villain for financing them. Usually he's given credit for creating a bank, quote, for the little guy, financing things no other bank would touch, and also wants to add in those days Italians and Portuguese weren't really considered white by, quote, real white people. Right. So it's this formation of whiteness through this activity. And again, it's not that Giannini's a bad guy. And in fact, I say in the book, I think I literally have that sentence. The point isn't that Giannini's a bad guy. And in fact, he doesn't really seem to have been a bad guy. He seemed kind of a nice guy. And mostly the people who were really mad at him were com other complacent bankers. And it's true. It's through this process that Italians and Portuguese do become white and become assimilated into whiteness. At the same time, uh, this is a violent process, and the cartels have night riders who are burning down people's farms if they don't join, including the farms of Armenian refugees who had escaped a genocide and wanted to have their independent little farms, and you can't have your independent little farms. And this is concurrent with uh, laws that are banning a uh, Asian immigrants from owning land. So... Uh, Yes, the version of Bank of America history we get is too simplistic. Absolutely. Uh, the version I think maybe your readers are imagining that I'm giving might also be too simplistic. <laughs> the actual history uh, is very complicated. That's why the book's so long. Yeah. We're talking with Malcolm Harris about his new book, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. When we get back, we're going to take some of your calls. Stay tuned. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Malcolm Harris about his new book, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. Uh, let's get to some calls, Malcolm. There's a bunch of people who uh, want to talk to you on the phone lines here. Karen in San Francisco, welcome. Thank you, Alexis. And thank you so much for this book. I can't wait to read it, Malcolm. What really evoked for me is this op-ed that came out in the New York Times on Sunday. Even Democrats like me are fed up with San Francisco, written by Michael mm. Moritz, who is 
a partner at Sequoia Capital, and he funded Crank Start, a San Francisco-based foundation that's funding Together SF and Grow SF and who knows. SF and the San Francisco Standard, the paper. Yeah. Yes, and the San Francisco Standard paper. And I've been to Together SF events where they're really trying to recruit the beneficiaries of the existing system who are aggrieved uh, by homelessness and uh, open-air drug use and uh, those types of things to um, align with real estate developers and um, really try to push black and brown people out of San Francisco. Yeah, Karen, I know that yeah. uh, Malcolm is familiar with that um, with that op-ed as well. And uh, thanks. I, I know lots of people are talking about it around the city. Thanks for that uh, for that call. Um, do you want to you want to respond about the the op-ed, Malcolm? Yeah, uh, in a couple ways, because I think that that's a real great description, Karen, of the strategy of recruiting these aggrieved homeowners or the population, and that's a really old strategy that goes back to you know the early. 20th century, where you had the California Highway Patrol recruiting people to go beat up communist farm agitators, uh, again, brown farm, communist farm agitators. Um, <clears throat> and you see it again with Prop 13 and the organization of the homeowners revolt, and we're seeing it again now. Uh, I find it kind of bizarre, though, because how much more power does someone like Mike Moritz want, right? He's already uh, intervening hugely, hugely in local politics. And at a certain point, you have to take responsibility for the way things are. And if you don't like the way things are, you got to look at uh, who's benefiting from it. And if who's benefiting from it is you, then maybe you're not the one to solve the problem. I sort of think about it like the portrait of Dorian Gray in the Oscar Wilde story, that we've got these tech billionaires who everything is going great, except they've got this portrait and they're confused why the portrait doesn't look great. You know, why is everything in my life so wonderful except this darn portrait? Uh, and they don't understand that the things that they're complaining about are the consequences of their own prosperity. Hmm. Right. D. Or as Taylor Swift would put it, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, I mean, there, yes, I did want to have you kind of tackle this. I mean, there is this like, I think it kind of breaks people's brains. Sometimes it breaks my own brain that it does feel like living in the Bay Area and in San Francisco at this moment in time right now. You're like, I'm in the richest place on earth. And it's also dread filled and um, and just can feel very unsafe for a wide variety of people for a wide variety of reasons. Um, it, it Talk to me about how you think that city got built from what seems like incredible prosperity and lots of quote unquote innovation and all these other things that we have, you know, come to many people have come to prize about, you know, Silicon Valley. Well, I don't want to weigh too much into San Francisco politics because you've got a lot of listeners who are more expert than me on the topic. And that's not exactly what the book is about. Uh, but I do talk about it as it's turned into a sort of suburb of Palo Alto and of Silicon Valley, which we've seen in this, the 21st century. Uh, and what have the consequences been of that development, right? Like, and going back to that op-ed, uh, part of the argument was really like vulgar laugher curve stuff where it's like, you need to lower our taxes so that we pay more taxes. Well, they tried that, right? That was the Twitter tax cut was supposed to 
cut taxes on all these businesses to stay in San Francisco so that their tax money stayed in San Francisco and supported the city uh, and supported its services. And what has the result been, right? Has that worked? Have you had an improved public services situation in San Francisco? I don't think so. And the idea that you're able to maintain a little level of inequality at the same time that you know you're creating a massive level of inequality intentionally and tilting the balance of the whole economy towards yourself. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it's vulgar is what it is. I think your one line on this is a quote from your book, uh, which I'll read back to you, was you can't improve the well-being of the working class with the money you get from sabotaging the well-being of the, of the working class. Um, yeah, that's a smart way to put it. Whoever put it <laughs> yeah, that Malcolm Harris. Um, okay. You know, I, I, one of the things that I think people do struggle with, though, is that many people kind of like the outputs of the kind of technological society that we live in. Maybe not all of them, but they like some set of them or they like to spend some, you know, a big chunk of their time using the outputs of this system. Like in some some market sense, a lot of these things have have worked um, how, how do you kind of bring that into contact with your larger kind of critique of the history and purpose of this place? Well, we can see the same thing around the, the taxpayer revolt is that you set one quadrant of people's interests against another quadrant uh, and align them against the people that you're set against in the working class. And so you see that with, if you're a a homeowner, if you're a middle-class homeowner looking at Prop 13, whatever, you really like the part where you don't have to pay increased housing taxes. That's very important to you. You might not like the part where corporations don't have to pay their property taxes either, and their whole tax base gets sabotaged and your quality of your kid's school goes down. Like You might not like that part, but you like the part about property taxes not going up. And so you, the people who are trying to, whose interests are in property taxes not going up, the people Karen was talking about, the real estate industry um, and big property owners, appeal to this set of interests and they split people's interests away from their role as a member of the working class into their position, maybe as homeowners, maybe as white people, maybe as parents, uh, and find ways to set themselves against the bulk of the class that they're a part of. And that California strategy has been very, very useful. When you talk about this in the book is labor bifurcation and with a great example being sort of like the engineers and kind of white collar workers of the semiconductor industry, you know, creating these uh, computer chips. And then all the people who are working on the assembly lines, largely uh, immigrant women to the United States. And you see that kind of across the in, in your history, you see that kind of like across the board. Yeah. And it become it goes from being this labor market separation where you have some set of people racially divided, uh, maybe immigration status divided, also gender divided, uh, right? You had immigrant women workers uh, from East Asia and the Philippines and South Asia doing that work while you had white men predominantly doing the design work and you're able to separate those facilities. And then over time, they, they drift apart further and further. So then you have a firm where they're just contracting the the manufacturing uh, work and they've got the design and then they've got a situation where the the fabrication is shipped overseas right after you've got uh boxes to ship those things back and forth efficiently 
then you don't even have to see that. Then they're in a whole different country. Then they've got a different set of labor laws. Uh, and so it, this leads to offshoring and that kind of relationship immediately. And it's like the chip industry is offshore almost immediately yeah. in the early 60s. It's not something that starts in the 80s or 90s. It starts in 1961. Right. Yeah, exactly. As soon as those places are, are labor markets, you know, Hong Kong and uh, all the, the places that we're controlling through kind of imperial geopolitics. Um, uh, and as Mother, a direct, yeah. direct result of union organizing on the line. Um, Katie writes in to say, um, I was born and raised in Berkeley, but my grandparents lived at 101 Alma Street in Palo Alto from the late 50s through the 80s. I felt personally in my family and in the Bay Area culture a tension between Berkeley values and Palo Alto values. Everything from the big game to capitalism versus communism, etc. Berkeley felt like the freewheeling hippie big ideas changed the world. Palo Alto was the utopia of my grandparents with all the desirable material and social and climate qualities. Can you comment on the tension between these kind of two Bay Area cities and, and cultures? Yeah, well, for every uh, aggravated person in Palo Alto who now doesn't want to buy the book, then some uh, Bears fan should go out there and pick it up, <laughs> uh, I think. I'm going I'm to use this bifurcation to motivate sales. Uh, I think there's some truth to that, but I think it's also true that the division's split across those schools so you have it you've got plenty of military industrial complex in berkeley like no one can possibly be confused about that uh plenty of history of elitism and exclusion uh and at the same time in in palo alto and even around stanford you have uh worker organizing you've got left-wing organizing so and those values exist in palo alto absolutely have some people have alluded to earlier um so I don't want to I don't want to turn it into a, a Cal v. Stanford thing because that's not quite the case. And when you see like anti-colonial organizing in the early part of the 20th century or left-wing organizing in the 60s and 70s, uh, they're doing it around the Bay, right? So Palo Alto is linked very directly to Berkeley, to the East Bay, to San Francisco, and these communities are part of this larger Bay Area community, especially politically. So I, I don't want to turn it into a town rivalry thing. Right. Uh, and those tensions are implicit in this mode of production. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can find all kinds of radicals at Stanford in the 1960s, as you were kind of alluding to, including the kind of the, the Maoist Red Guard with Bruce Franklin. And th that story is also uh, in this book, which we probably won't get time uh, today to, to get to, in part because I'd like to bring in Charlene from Gilroy. Welcome, Charlene. Thank you. Thank you for um, taking my call. Um, I'm Charlene Nishma, chairwoman for the Mowak Maloney tribe. Um, I, you know, Malcolm's account of the history of Palo Alto is, isn't shocking to the indigenous population who lived it. Um, the Mowak Maloney people today still suffer from the colonial and racist mindset. You know, we have lived on these Bay Area lands for thousands of years and all documented and verified by the best academics in the Bay Area universities who worked with us for decades, um, but we still are not acknowledged as a federal recognized tribe. Uh, we are still being politically erased by our politicians, our local politicians um, who refuse to support our fight to restore our status unless we give up a piece of our freedom, our sovereignty to build our own economy. And I, I just want to thank um, you know, thank and congratulate Malcolm for a well-researched, 
well-written book that tells the history of our homeland. And, and thank you, Malcolm, for your voice. It means so much to my people that, you know, there are people willing to challenge the powerful and actually speak truth to power and, and not just to pretend to do it. You know, so thank you. And I wish you the best of luck on your book. I really believe it will be very successful. Thank you. Thank you, Charlene. Um, Chair, one of the Mowekma Ohlone tribe. Um, you know, Malcolm, I mean, th- this leads directly into sort of where your book lands, which is that Stanford should give the land back, should rematriate the land with the Ohlone people um, whose ancestral lands the, the university is on. Yeah, and thanks to Charlene, first of all, for, for calling in. Uh, and not just the Ohlone people, which is a more general term, but the Muwekma Ohlone, who are a politically constituted tribe uh, led by the woman who just called into the radio of over 600 people. It's an organization that Stanford acknowledges as the political representation in the present day of the ancestral title holders of this land. Uh, I encourage people to Google Stanford University land acknowledgement and go to that page and see not only that they acknowledge the Mowekmo Ohlone as the ancestral title holders, but that as a link to the concept of land back on that page. Uh, and they discuss the necessity of moving past just the symbolism and rhetoric into actual practice. Stanford University has plenty of uh, land that's been preserved in this university since the 19th century. Uh, And I'd also like to encourage listeners, especially listeners in the Bay Area, who I think are most of the listeners, to contact their congresspeople, encourage them to support the Muwakma campaign for federal recognition. The Biden administration uh, and the California delegation are really continuing this legacy of colonial orientation that has been led since Peter Burnett, the first governor of California, and they've been determined not to negotiate on the basis of truth but on a basis of power, and that's that's continuing to happen today. So I encourage people to reach out to their congresspeople, tell them to meet with the Moekma, meet with Charlene, recognize the Moekma as a tribe, re-recognize them, put them back on the register, and we can move into the future for this land uh, on this basis. So, you know, I'm going to get to this comment from Russ. You know, it may be that people have come along. I'm not saying all of our listeners have, but some people have come along on this journey with you, this this retelling of the story of Silicon Valley. But as Russ kind of uh, notes here, some of the reviews of the book have been harsh, but written by and large by people who have flourished by perpetuating the hero-based mythology of Silicon Valley. Do you ever feel you're tilting at windmills? Like, do you feel like even if people come along with you on this history, they're prepared to do much beyond, um, you know, I- acknowledge its its realities. Um, what do you think? Uh, no, I don't believe that. I mean, I believe we're at a, a time of historical crisis. And I think an important part of historicizing California history in this way uh, is to show how short it is and show how recent these changes are and to show that this system of production and distribution has only been around for less than 200 years as a global system. And in that time, uh, it's pushed the world to the brink of ecological catastrophe, right? So I don't think I'm unrealistic saying things have to change in a fundamental way. 
I think anyone who's looking at the world in an objective sense and thinks we can continue this way for another 200 years is kidding themselves, right? They're the one who's til tilting at windmills. Uh, if they think that we can solve our climate uh, and various larger ecological crises through the same way we've caused them, uh, that seems less reliable to me than thinking about how do we look at people who have preserved this land in the past for hundreds of years, millennia, uh, as a guide how to deal with it in the future. Yeah. If you had to sum up in you know a slogan form what you want when you say economic democracy like what would you say the true equality of all people um because that's what it means and the, the concern of economic democracy to capitalists is that if people were allowed to vote on who had stuff and who didn't they would vote away the privileges that capitalists have and I think that's not going to happen, right? I don't believe that uh, we're going to be allowed to make that vote for that reason. But that's the threat that Palo Alto has been de dealing with constantly over the last 150 years and the, the threat that it's been set up to deal with, right? That's why Leland Stanford founded this suburb in the first place, was to escape the workers who were yelling outside his window. We have been talking with Malcolm Harris about his new book, Palo Alto, A History of California, capitalism and the world and that ambitious subtitle is borne out by the pretty extraordinary amount of research that's gone into this book it is worth a read thank you malcolm for joining us thank you so much for having me alexis and thank you also to our listeners for your calls and comments i'm sorry we couldn't get to all of them i'm alexis madrigal stay tuned for another hour of forum ahead with guest host marisa lagos Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom, a 
story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.